0: Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, how we thank you for, once again, your presence and for the opportunity we have to open your word and recognize it is truly that. Help each one of us to wrestle with the challenge that is before us to honestly evaluate our lives, not to let this simply pass. And I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and we'll read our scripture for the morning. It's Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16, and I'm going to be reading verses 21 through 28, Matthew 16. From that time on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things at the hands of the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and on the third day be raised to life. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Never, Lord, he said, this shall never happen to you. Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. Then Jesus said to his disciples, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the Son of Man coming in His kingdom. Thank you. You may be seated. This morning, we are absolutely forced by the text in front of us to take a good, long, hard look at our commitment level to the Lord Jesus Christ. You saw in the reading, we can't help but be able to do that. What Jesus has to say to His followers is not easy to swallow. So this is a warning. This could be very uncomfortable for us. And if you weren't here last week, I'm picking up where I left off in a study of Matthew about a year ago. And uh, I, I love to go book by book and verse by verse within the books because these uncomfortable moments will appear. And we don't have to avoid them or duck them. And it could be uncomfortable for us. What Jesus has to say will help us to weed out what has been referred to historically as the summer soldier and the sunshine sunshine patriot, in other words, fair weather friends. Since we celebrated Independence Day this week, I thought it would be appropriate to share from The Crisis, which was written by Thomas Paine. And he said these words, December 23rd, 1776. This was the winter before Valley Forge, not the winter of Valley Forge, but that was a year later. But he was very prophetic in some of the things that he said and also called the people of that time in service to their country to not be a fair-weather friend. These are very familiar words. As soon as I start to read the quote, you'll understand. He said, these are the times that try men's souls... The summer soldier and the sunshine patriot will, in this crisis, shrink from the service of their country. But he that stands it now deserves the love and thanks of man and woman. Tyranny, like hell, is not easily conquered. Yet we have this consolation with us, that the harder the conflict, the more glorious the triumph. What we obtain too cheap, we esteem too lightly. It is dearness only that gives everything its value. And so the call is, even if it's hard, it's good to do. And that's the call that Jesus is telling us. It was hard for him to do what he had to do, and he called disciples to do some things that are hard to do as well. So let me ask some probing questions, first of all. How do you react to the hard circumstances in life? How do you react? And be honest with yourself. When things get tough, what kind of an attitude do I display? What is your response when being a Christian doesn't seem very popular or very cool? What is your response? Is it to blend in? Is it to be comfortable yourself? Or is it to say, regardless of what everyone else is doing, I'm going to take my stand for the Lord? What happens when that which is right and necessary is hard and costly? Is the fruit of the Spirit on display in your life, even when unpleasantness rears its ugly head? And the point of the message today is the things of God are not always pleasant in the short run. But if they're the things of God, then they're necessary and they're good and they're proper. And no matter what it costs, we have to be willing to pay that price. In our scripture this morning, we have Jesus impending death. Necessary, we would have to say that, wouldn't we? Necessary, but not pleasant. The same thing can be said about self-denial and taking up one's cross, which we read this morning. Trusting God is not leaning on our own understanding. Please remember this, that God never promised us Only a rose garden. He promised us better than a rose garden, ultimately, didn't he? But he never promised us only a rose garden here on the earth. I can't help but remember years and years ago, one of our college students said, I didn't know being a Christian could be so tough. And I thought, this individual needs to read her Bible a little bit more, needs to pay more attention. Yes, it is tough. It's called to be tough. Some apparent unpleasantness reared itself in our Scripture this morning. And if you look at verse 21 again with me, you'll see from that time on, Jesus began to explain to His disciples, and then will come some very important things. There's a turning point that's just taken place. Jesus is now about to inform His disciples of what was ahead. It would not be pleasant news for them, at least not at first, and at least not what they would understand at that time. So it says from that time on, Peter had just made that confession of who the Lord Jesus Christ is. From that time on, Jesus began to do something. He began to state and repeat over and over again something that was bad news to them. He told them about four future events. The first one, he must go to Jerusalem. That was not a healthy place for Jesus to go to. If you know what's happening in Matthew, in the Gospels to this point, you know that there were many there who wanted to kill him now. There were those who were conspiring against Him. Jerusalem is not a good place to go to, but it says He must go there. That means that which is done from a sense of duty. It was necessary for Him to go. It was the very purpose why He came. It's the ultimate completion of the incarnation. God became a human being so that He could go and die on that cross. He had to go to Jerusalem. He could not bypass that. Was it pleasant? Not a bit, but he had no choice because he was determined. He says, I came to do the Father's will, and it was God's will for our sake that Jesus was going to die. Peter should not try to talk him out of it, but he does anyway. Four future events. First, he must go to Jerusalem. Second, He must suffer many things at the hands of the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. Those three groups making up the Sanhedrin, those groups that you wouldn't want to suffer under. And the disciples couldn't understand what was going on. These were the enemies. These were the people that were after Jesus. He was going to go to Jerusalem, and he was going to know that he suffered many things at their hands. Thirdly, he must be killed. This is the first explicit prediction by Jesus of His impending execution. Several more times He would tell them the same thing. doesn't take them long to get a reminder in Matthew 17, the next chapter. It says, as they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, the Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill Him, and He will be raised on the third day. And they were greatly distressed. It wasn't pleasant what they heard. It wasn't what they wanted to hear. Three chapters later, in Matthew chapter 20, it adds this. He would be delivered over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. A little bit more detail into some of those many things that he would have to suffer. And that's not even including taking your sin and my sin on himself and having the Father not able to look on him in his sin and for him to have to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was not a pleasant task that was in front of the Lord Jesus. And then he gave them a fourth piece of information. He must be raised to life on the third day. That doesn't sound like a bad thing, but remember, they didn't get that yet. They were distressed when he uttered all of those words. They didn't understand what he meant when he said they would be raised again after three days. So some apparent unpleasantness, if you're the disciples, it's not apparent, this is unpleasant, this is really bad news. Now here's a reaction. It's a things of man reaction, also known as a human reaction or you could say a worldly reaction, or a carnal reaction, or a fleshly reaction. The kind of reaction that we have when God the Holy Spirit is not living His life through us. Peter reacted in that manner. A things of man reaction. He reacted in a typical manner for himself, the same way we often react to the cost involved in doing the right thing. He didn't want to see the one he loved, the Lord Jesus, have to pay that terrible cost. Peter reacted in a typical manner too because he reacted impetuously, emphatically, and defensively, which we see very often in his life. He had the audacity, it uses the word, to rebuke the Lord Jesus for what Jesus had just said. Never, Lord, this shall never happen to you. He didn't want the old adage, no pain, no gain, to play out with the Lord Jesus. We have to admire Peter's love and loyalty for Jesus, but we also have to learn from the mistake he made. Jesus always knows what he's doing. And there's no way any of us should ever, even in the deep recesses of our mind, rebuke him or fight against what he's doing. He knows what he's doing. We need to trust Him in everything and not lean to our own understanding. Our own understanding causes us to make some of these things of man reactions. Peter's understanding of what Jesus said, that stinks. A very typical reaction that we have when unpleasant things happen in our lives. But if Peter had gotten his way, guess who wouldn't be sitting here this morning as a saved sinner. Do you understand what I'm saying? Think about that. Who would be sitting here and not a saved sinner if Peter had his way and talked Jesus into not going to Jerusalem and not going to the cross? You know who wouldn't be here? Who wouldn't be here would be the person who's sitting next to the person next to you. Uh, that person. That person. And I think all of us would agree that it was well for Jesus to react the way he did to what Peter said when Peter was trying to dissuade him to do what was the right thing. All Peter could see was suffering and death, and a lot of suffering before that death. He didn't yet see the value of Jesus' death. He wanted to avoid unpleasantness. He wanted to avoid sacrifice. He saw no purpose in pain. I don't know about you, but I learned a long time ago that I don't like pain. You know why? Pain hurts. And I don't like that. Neither did Peter. And he would do whatever to avoid the pain even if it was necessary to have that pain. Jesus' reaction showed that Peter had reacted wrongly. Three stinging indictments followed this. The first one, Peter was a pawn of Satan. Verse 23, that's why Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. Peter was being used by Satan to try to keep the Lord Jesus from going to the cross because Satan knew what would happen when Jesus did die on the cross. Satan knew what would happen to himself. That would be his ruin. Also, Jesus said to Peter, you're a stumbling block to me. At least he was attempting to be a stumbling block. Jesus didn't let it happen. Thank God that Jesus didn't stumble over Peter. And looking again at verse 23, Peter reversed proper thinking. Jesus said, you do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. That's why I call this a things of man reaction. But Jesus said to Peter, get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. How often we react in our Christian lives to the whole idea that if it's unpleasant, somehow I'm going to find a way around it. I'll find my own way around it. God's will is more important than our comfort. Doing the best may be costly. We turn now to a things-of-God reaction that follows immediately upon this. This in verse 24. A things-of-God reaction. Something that Jesus is calling all of us to. This isn't directed just to Peter and the disciples. This is if anyone wants to do what Jesus wants. Whoever wants to save his life will lose it. If anyone would come after me, he must do these things Jesus is saying. That's what a true follower of Jesus is. A things of God person. But there would be a cost. Now if you look at verse 24, we're introduced to some unpleasant actions. First thing we're told, verse 24, somebody really wants to come after Jesus. He must deny himself. Must deny himself. I'm quoting here from... John MacArthur, he says, self-denial was a common thread in Christ's teaching to his disciples. The kind of self-denial he sought was not a reclusive asceticism, but a willingness to obey his commandments, serve one another, and suffer. He's not talking about denying oneself by fasting five days a week or not speaking a word for a long time or going into a monastery or going into a cave. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about self-denial in the normal course of life where it is Jesus first and we're not. He must deny himself, take up his cross. Luke adds the word daily. A very good reminder because there's no vacation from this. Take up his cross daily. One of the commentaries says a condemned criminal was forced to carry one bar of his cross to the place of execution. He was on a one way journey. He'd not be back. To take up the cross daily is to live each day, not for self, but for Christ. It's not about me, it's about him. As I've been studying through this, I understand that sometimes we talk about the cross we have to bear. And somebody has written about that. They're not simple trials or hardships. It's not something like a nutty boss or an unfair teacher or a bossy mother-in-law. This is, quote, bossy mother-in-law as a cross. But they're not. Neither can we properly call an illness or a handicap a cross. A cross results from specifically walking in Christ's steps, embracing his life. It comes from bearing disdain because we're following the narrow way of Jesus Christ, the way, the truth, and the life. It comes from living out the business and sexual ethics of Christ in the marketplace, the community, the family, the world. It comes from standing true in difficult circumstances for the sake of the Gospel. Taking up a cross daily means I'm going to live for the Lord no matter how much it costs me. And again, I can't help but think of those of you who are maybe a little bit younger Those of you who are involved with a lot of other people who may laugh and ridicule and scorn the things you do and the way you live, and it is so easy to give in to them. It's so easy to be two different people, one here at church and one at school or one among your friends. He must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow Jesus. To follow Jesus, really follow hard after him. A man by the name of Tim Bowden wrote a book called One Crowded Hour, and he describes an incident in Borneo back in the early 60s. Nepalese fighters, known as Gurkhas, were asked if they would be willing to jump from airplanes into combat against the Indonesians. The Gurkhas didn't clearly understand what was involved, but they bravely said they would do it, asking only that the plane fly slowly over a swampy area and no higher than 100 feet. When they were told that the parachutes would not have time to open at that height, the Gurkhas replied, oh, you didn't mention parachutes before. That's a kind of commitment the Lord Jesus is asking from us. Can you imagine those individuals thought that they were going to be jumping out of airplanes without parachutes? And they were willing to do that because that was what they were commanded to do and it was necessary to do. It wouldn't have been pleasant Jesus calls for us to follow him with that similar kind of commitment and courage, willing to risk all for his sake. You have to be asking this question in some way or another. To what advantage? What's in it for me? Why would I want to do that? Why would I want to forsake myself and take up this cross every day and follow Jesus? What's in it for me? First of all, if you look at verse 25, it turns a loss into a fine. Jesus said, for whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for me will find it. That's the real life, the life of following the Lord Jesus. You can live a lot of other kinds of lives. None of them will be fulfilling. None of them will be satisfying. None of them will make a difference at all. It turns a loss into a fine Six times in the Gospels, losing one's life for Christ is mentioned. Do you realize no other saying of Jesus is mentioned that much except, follow me? It does not necessarily refer to martyrdom, but it might come to that. It is referring to total commitment to Christ. It's not being a fair weather, casual Christian. It's not a summer soldier, not a sunshine patriot, but someone who will stay there in the winter and in the storm, no matter how unpleasant that it might be. I'm sure more than half of you remember Jim Elliott, the martyred missionary, who said this very famous quote, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. That's what's in it for us when we follow Jesus the way he wants us to. Secondly, To what advantage will it prioritize the value of soul over material gain? Look at verse 26. What good will it be for a man if he gains the whole world, yet forfeits his soul? Or what can a man give in exchange for his soul? The priority is there. What's important? Is it important that I get a lot of things for myself and do a lot of things for myself? Or is it important that I work on the soul part. Some of you know the name Joe Stoll. Several years years ago, he says this story about a friend of his who visited an exhibit of relics from the Titanic voyage. Exhibit visitors were given a replica ticket with the name of an actual passenger or crew member who decades earlier had embarked on the trip of a lifetime. After the tour... The group walked through the exhibit viewing pieces of silver dinnerware and other artifacts. And um, a little picture of that here. I took it from our breakfast table. That's what we have every morning. But (laughs) No, actually, um, it ended this little tour with a a twist. A large board listed the names of all the passengers, including their status, first class, second class, crew, etc., He says, as my friend looked for the name of the person whose ticket he was holding, he noticed a line across the board dividing the names. Above the line were the names of those who were saved, and below the line all those who were lost. The parallel to our life on earth is profound, he says. It really doesn't make any difference how the world ranks your status. The only thing that ultimately matters is whether you are saved or lost. As Jesus said, what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? What's in it for me to live this kind of a life that Jesus has called me to? It promises a reward from God. If you look at verse 22 again, oh, excuse me, not verse 22, verse 27. For the Son of Man is going to come in His Father's glory with His angels and then He will reward each person according to what He has done. A reward from God. Again, telling a story. I love to tell stories because Jesus did that a whole lot. Richard DeHaan, some of you know him from your devotional readings in Our Daily Bread. He says, a little girl who needed surgery was terrified. As an encouragement... Her parents promised to give her something she had wanted for a long time. A kitten to each his own. The operation went well. But as the anesthesia was wearing off, the youngster was heard mumbling to herself, this sure is a lousy way to get a cat. Christians who endure hardship in serving the Lord will never feel that way when they look back on the trials. It's true that all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Paul said our suffering for Christ isn't worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. And Peter told us, Rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when His glory is revealed, you also may be glad with exceeding joy. I hope you see the picture that is here. Unpleasantness is not the bottom line. It doesn't mean we've got to avoid that. Unpleasantness goes along with the trip of being a follower of the Lord Jesus. Ultimately, the rewards are there. In fact, there's another reward mentioned here in verse 28, promised an immediate reward for some of them standing there at that time. Some of them would not taste death before they saw the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. What did that mean? The next verse, beginning the next chapter, talks about the transfiguration of Jesus. I believe that's what is in view there. The ESV study Bible lists six possible explanations. There are lots of other ones. um, But maybe we'll see that another time, but we won't see that this morning. Here again the point. The things of God do not always look pleasant in the short run. But it's the long haul that counts. Many biblical examples of this. And we don't have time to go into them all this morning. Let me share one of them. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16-18. to 18. Therefore we do not lose heart, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day. And this is what the Apostle Paul wrote. Think about his trials that he had. All of the times that he was stoned and beaten and thrown off of ships for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all so we fix our eyes not on what is seen but on what is unseen for what is seen is temporary but what is unseen is eternal that's what jesus has called us to question have you answered his call Are you willing to be one of those who follows Jesus? If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself. It's not all about me, it's all about him. He must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Are you willing to answer that call? That's the challenge. Do you understand why I warned us all before that this could be something that is unpleasant? Because some of us are not living that kind of life. One further story, perhaps the most effective advertisement ever written appeared in a London newspaper early in the 20th century. Men wanted for hazardous journey, small wages, bitter cold, long months of complete darkness, constant danger, safe return, doubtful. Those words were written by Sir Ernest Shackleton, famous South Pole explorer. Commenting on the overwhelming response he received. Can you believe that? The overwhelming positive response he received. He said, it seemed as though all the men in Great Britain were determined to accompany us. Are you willing to put up with some unpleasantness for a greater goal? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, that goal that You've given to us to come after Jesus, denying ourselves, taking up our cross, following Him. Yes, there are unpleasant aspects of that. You've promised us that in this world we will suffer persecution. We will have trials. But you've told us to be of good cheer. Help us to trust you with all of our hearts and not to lean to our own understanding. Not to think in terms of the ways of man but your ways, and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.